Welcome to Community Online. My name is Sherry Benke, and I'm so glad you're with us today. I believe God has some great things in store for us today as we wrap up our Pray Like This series. Let me introduce today's teaching pastor. Ted Canaris is the community pastor at our Downers Grove location. And not only is he passionate about the mission, he's passionate about prayer. I think he's the perfect person to wrap up our Pray Like This series. So let's join Ted as he brings us today's message. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead, and lead us, us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For, for yours, yours is the kingdom, the kingdom and, and the power and the, and the glory, glory forever. Amen. Happy Father's Day, everybody. I am so excited to be with you today. I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but it seems like stories about kings and queens and kingdoms are more popular today than they have ever been before. I mean, there are epic historical dramas like the show The Crown about Queen Elizabeth's rise to fame. There's epic fantasy stories like Game of Thrones that are telling terrible stories about wars and dragons. And then there are shows that, I mean, I have no interest in that I wish were only a fantasy. Stories like Tiger King. It seems that we as a culture are borderline obsessed with these stories. But there's something that I think we overlook about stories like these, and it's something that they all share in common. It's not the action. It's not the adventure. It's not the suspense or the thrill. It's that each of these stories ends as a tragedy. Every kingdom eventually falls. You see, no matter how impressive no matter how vast, no matter how powerful a kingdom may seem, the reality is that every story built on the pursuit of more and more power is only successful for a moment, and then it's gone. I mean, think about it. History has shown us that every kingdom, every government, has a season of thriving, and then it's never forever. Humanity's best efforts to build a kingdom for ourselves has always ended in tragedy. Everything has a shelf life. Now, I'm not here just to be like Debbie Downer to you or to rain on your parade, but I think it's critically important that we think about these important realities for a couple reasons. First, well, because it's true, and it's important, right, that our worldview be built on truth. Second, because if we don't take note of these historical lessons— we really run the risk of putting our ultimate hope in something that is temporary and something that was never meant to hold our ultimate hope. But the good news for us is that Jesus tells a different story. Jesus tells us about a different kind of kingdom, a kingdom that isn't temporary, a kingdom that has unlimited power, a kingdom of perfect peace, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that will always end in victory and will not end in tragedy. But the path to this kingdom is a little bit different than we often think. It's not the typical path, one of propaganda or control or power. It's a path of of a different kind. It's a path that can seem foreign to us but also can seem strangely familiar to us as well. 
It's a path that leads us back to a home that we've forgotten. So today, as we finish up our series, Pray Like This, we're going to talk about how prayer can help move us on this path towards this kind of kingdom. Of all the things that Jesus' disciples could have asked Jesus to teach them, they asked him this one question. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. Why would they ask him this question? Well, because Jesus prayed. Prayer was a central part of Jesus's ministry. And when Jesus prayed, peace was received, food was multiplied, illnesses were cured, and direction was given. Prayer was a catalyst for the ministry of Jesus, and it was a critical aspect of the ministry of Jesus. And the thing about being a disciple is you're a disciple in order to become more like Jesus, right? To do your life and your ministry like Jesus did. So the disciples knew that in order for them to do that, they needed to learn how to pray. And that same thing is true for us today, for all followers of Jesus. In fact, author and pastor Richard Foster reminds us of this. He says, all who have walked with God have viewed prayer as the main business of their lives. All who have walked with God, whether the original 12 who walked with Jesus physically or us today who walk with Jesus spiritually. You see, prayer is at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Prayer is the core practice of an apprentice of Jesus. So when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, he gave them a prayer. He taught them how to pray with a prayer that Jesus followers have been using as a model and as a guide for prayer for the last 2,000 years. And so I thought we'd start today by reading it and praying it together. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Each week of this series, we've been digging into this prayer to learn how to pray. And on top of that, we've looked at each line of this prayer to learn a new form of prayer. And today we're focusing in on this very last line. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. My guess is that for many of you, this last line of the prayer could be a little bit perplexing. And I think there's good reason for that. Because when it comes to this part of the prayer, some people pray it and others don't. I mean, I grew up in a church that did pray this last part of the prayer, but I'll never forget, I was a little bit, actually a lot uncomfortable the first time I was praying this with a group of people in a different church context. I mean, you probably know the feeling, right? When you're in a public place and it seems like everybody's talking and there's noise and everything going on, and then somehow, like a coordinated effort, it all stops and you're there talking and it sounds like you're yelling at everybody and all eyes are on you. Well, that's exactly what happened to me. I mean, you could probably picture it. A young, ambitious, passionate, bearded, 10-year-old Ted Kadaris sitting there praying. And as everybody stops, I continue, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen? I mean, it was a terrible experience. And later, I noticed that if you actually open up the Bible and look in the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see that most Bibles don't include this last line. 
It's just on the very bottom of the page, a little footnote that says something like, some late manuscripts include, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Essentially, what this concluding statement means, what this footnote means, is that it doesn't appear in the oldest manuscripts of Matthew's gospel. But the early church used this phrase, and within even just one generation of Jesus' life, this was a common inclusion in this prayer. So, all of this raises a few questions for us. First, where does this statement come from? Second, what does it mean? And why did the early church include it? Well, it may surprise you, but this statement actually comes from an ancient prayer, a prayer that was prayed a thousand years before the life of Jesus. It was a prayer prayed by King David in front of the entire assembly of Israel at a pivotal moment in the nation's history. Let me give you a little bit of context. King David was the most epic, greatest king in the history of Israel. He united a divided nation. He defeated their longtime generational enemies, and he restored and ushered in an unprecedented season of peace and prosperity for the people of Israel. As a nation and as a people, they felt like they had finally made it. They were eating off the fat of the land. All of a sudden, they were finally living into all the promises that God had given them generations before. But David was not that content. But he wasn't discontent in the way you might imagine. See, David wasn't lusting after more power for himself. He wasn't after more land or more privilege for himself. Actually, David's dream was very different. His dream was to give back to God with such extravagance that it would celebrate him and make him famous, not just in Israel, but all over the world. You can think of it this way. David's dying wish was because God was so generous to him that he could give and show his gratitude to God by giving back to God in a radical and incredible way. And what was his plan? Well, his plan was to build a spectacular temple in the center of Israel. And this temple wasn't just going to be like an incredible feat of architecture, like a wonder of the world, which it was. It was to be the center of the Jewish life. It was to be the very place where the people would meet with God. And we find the beginning of this temple dream in the book of 1 Chronicles chapter 29. And to start the project, David takes up a huge offering and he begins with his own sacrificial gift. Now, if you look to this story, you'll see a bunch of strange measurements and numbers that will be very unfamiliar to us today. But here's what you need to know about this story and why it's so important. David gave away all of his personal treasury. He gave a gift of gold and silver that was so big, it was somewhere equivalent to around five billion, with a B, dollars. Five billion dollars. In other words, David's final act as king was this incredible, radical act of generosity where he gave away everything that was his back to God. I mean, this was completely unheard of in the ancient world. I mean, just like it would be completely unheard of today. Everything was supposed to flow to the king. But David gives everything back to God and says, all of it is for you. All of it is for your glory. And the people follow suit and they give radically generously to the cause of building this temple to God's glory. But the most important part of this is not the amount of money that's given. 
It's actually what's going on inside of David. It's what's going on inside of the people of Israel. And what ends up happening at the end of this moment is, is David bursts into a prayer, into this epic, amazing prayer, expressing this full-hearted response of him and the people. And at the climax of this amazing moment, as he's commissioning these unbelievable gifts, this is what David prays. He says, yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. You see, this magnificent temple was not a symbol of Israel's glory. It was a symbol of God's glory. It was not a symbol of Israel's kingdom. It was a symbol of God's kingdom. It wasn't a symbol of Israel's power. It was a symbol of God's power. David is saying, all of this is yours. All of this is for you. So I hope in light of some of this historical context, you can begin to see and understand why the early church included this closing statement in this prayer. Because as amazing as the temple was, it was really only a symbol of something greater that was yet to come. A greater kingdom that would be put in place by a greater king, Jesus. So as we pray this prayer, as we pray the Lord's Prayer, it's as if we're bringing all the different parts of who we are and we're giving it to God and we're saying, this is for your kingdom. This is for your power. This is for your glory. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I want to spend a few minutes for us trying to unpack what it means for us right here, right now to give all of our kingdom and our power and our glory to God. For example, when it comes to kingdoms, the question for us is, is it mine or is it his? You might not think of it this way, but all of us have a kingdom. All of us have a part or an area of our life where what we say goes. And we are like kings and queens over this little kingdom. You might not feel like you have much of a kingdom, but you do have a kingdom. It might be your finances. It might be your job, your career. It might be your garage. I don't know where it is, but for me, I always think of my three young sons, my three little boys. And they're still young, and I know things are going to change as they will definitely outgrow me someday. But for now, I'm pretty much in control. If my wife and I say, hey, we're going to have chicken for dinner, we're going to have chicken for dinner. If we say, hey, let's go for a walk, we're going to go for a walk. If we say, hey, no more screaming or fighting, well, not exactly everything is in our kingdom right now, but we all have a kingdom. And these kingdoms, unfortunately, are temporary. I will always be their dad, right? But the way our relationship works, that dynamic is broken. It's never going to work as it should. And it's temporary. It will change. It will always change. But the good news is, the good news is that there is a kingdom that will never change. And that's God's kingdom. And when I submit my, my little kingdom of being a dad underneath the authority of this greater kingdom of what God is doing in the world, everything else falls into place. The stress, the anxiety, the desire to control, all of that dissipates. And I can be a loving father with no other vested interest other than loving them well as I have been loved by the true king. That brings me to our second point, power, power. 
Again, you might not necessarily think of yourself as being powerful, but we all have power, right? We all have the power to make choices. We all have the power to choose what's right and good or to choose what's wrong or evil. We have the power of words. We have the power of speech. But the question is, what are you using your power for? Or better yet, who are you using your power for? My youngest son, Elijah, he's only five, but man, he was born into the world with power. He has a powerful presence everywhere he goes. And as his parents, a part of our job is to affirm this gift that he has, but we also need to teach him how to use it. And he loves superhero movies. And so one of the things that we say to him often, almost every day, is just reminding him, that remember Elijah, the villains, the bad guys, they use their power to serve themselves. But the good guys, the superheroes, how do they use their power? They use their power to help others. You see, whatever power we have, big or small, this prayer for us can be a daily reminder to use our power for his glory and for his purposes. And God's purposes are always to love and to serve the other. Instead of using our power for our purposes, or to just serve ourselves. See, and even further than that, if we try to hang our hope on our own power, we really never have any security or confidence or certainty in that, do we? I mean, our power might seem safe for a moment. It might seem like something we can trust for a minute, but it's just a matter of time before the limits of that power are laid bare. We might think we have control. We might think we have power. But then, in a moment, it can all be taken away. Hasn't this pandemic shown that to be true? We might think we have financial power or control, but then in a moment, we fear its loss. We might think we have physical power and health, but in a moment, we're in fear of it being taken away. Anybody relate to that? I think so. I know I can. As much as we try to depend on or cling to our own power, somewhere deep down, I think each of us know that our power is actually not a secure thing. It's a fragile thing. It's something that is fleeting and something that cannot be trusted. But God's power, God's power isn't like that. God's power is unlimited. God's power can be trusted. God's power can be depended on. It has no brim. It has no bottom. God's power cannot be taken away no matter what happens. So we can find rest and trust because God is the true and complete power. And lastly, we all have glory. In a biblical sense, when we use the word glory, it simply means like a greatness or significance in the eyes of others. This is what you're good at or what maybe other people are drawn to in you. This is your glory. You may not be an all-star athlete. You may not have won any big awards or be a Nobel Prize winner, but you do have glory. All of us have glory. But regardless of where you think you're at in sort of the glory spectrum, here's the truth. The quest for our own individual glory will inevitably leave us feeling empty. It's a pursuit that will leave us permanently unsatisfied in a perpetual state of not enough. 
You see, when we're pursuing our own glory, we'll never be authentic and we'll never be able to be secure. Because as we're trying to pursue our own glory, we'll only end up uh, presenting ourselves as, as either posturing, trying to be something that we're actually not, or hiding, trying to keep things from people that we think might detract from our glory. It's only taking rest in the pursuit of God's glory that we can put all of that to bed. And we can be uniquely who we were created to be without trying to be who we're not, without hiding and without posturing. The only thing that will give us rest for our souls is the pursuit of God's glory and not our own. Author Peter Gregg, who helped us really frame this entire series, does a great job of summarizing it this way. It says, to pray the closing lines of the Lord's Prayer is to give the kingdom, the power, and the glory back to God. It's to give him our little empires, our family, our ministry, our career, and say, yours, Lord, is the kingdom. It's to give him the power bases that we have built and to say, yours, Lord, is the power. It's to give him our credibility, our trophies, our success, and say, yours, Lord, is the glory forever and right now. You see, this part of the Lord's Prayer is not just a nice way to kind of wrap things up at the end. It's a prayer of relinquishment. It's a prayer of surrender. It's a prayer that's submitting our kingdoms, our power, our glory to the only one worthy of it all. You see, just as David surrendered everything to God, Ending the prayer this way, praying this prayer is an opportunity for each of us to be fully surrendered to God as well. Which brings me to the last word in this prayer, which is amen. Amen might just seem like the traditional way to end a prayer, but it's actually so much more than that. When we say amen, we are emphatically agreeing. We're voicing agreement. We're saying, yes, I agree. Let it be. Amen. And when we say amen, we are affirming the prayer and we are making a commitment to that prayer. So if you think of it this way, amen isn't just an end. It's really like a beginning. So as we wrap up this series... I want to invite you to join in the voice of this great prayer with your amen. What I want to do is I want to read the one line at a time that we covered each week of the Lord's Prayer. And then I want to add just a statement or two about what we learned that week in the form of a prayer together. And then I want all of us in one voice to say amen after each section. Let it be. Let it come. So you ready? You want to do this with me? Follow along with me on the screen here. I'll be reading the top part, and then I'll cue us to say amen together wherever you find yourself sitting. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We praise you for being a relational, intimate God who is near to us. Thank you for all your blessings. We adore you. And together we say amen. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Help us to see the needs of the people around us and to intercede for them. Show us how to join you in bringing more of your kingdom to earth. And together we said, amen. Give us today our daily bread. 
We bring to you our needs and wants. We trust you to provide. And together we say, amen. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We confess the ways we have turned our backs on your wisdom and gone our own way. We return to you, grateful for your forgiveness. And together we say, amen. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Open our eyes to the spiritual realities all around us and strengthen us for the real battle. We stand in your victory. And together we say, amen. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We surrender to you, God. May our lives be for your kingdom, for your power and your glory. And together we say, amen.